0: Coming up next, Upstate's Healthlink on Air. On this week's show, we'll discuss the causes and treatments for glaucoma.
1: Even if your vision is fine, you still need that comprehensive eye exam. That's how you preserve your vision and prevent damage from glaucoma.
0: Plus, female urologic health through the ages. Women can get kidney stones, they can
2: get cancer in these organs, but About 50% of women do develop urinary incontinence, and about 10 to 15% develop uh, dropped bladder prolapse.
0: And we'll learn about an inclusive outdoor project for people with disabilities.
3: So we're a network. We're not an institute. We're not a center. We're just a group of people who all share an interest in promoting innovation in the area of inclusive fitness.
0: We'll get a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up. Right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine the urologic concerns of a woman through her life cycle. Plus, we'll learn all about a new program to engage people with disabilities with the great outdoors. But first, glaucoma is the second leading cause of blindness globally. What do you need to know? Well, the overall national rate for glaucoma is just under 2% for the United States population ages 40 and older, so that more than 2.7 million older Americans have primary glaucoma. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Robert Fechner. He's a nationally recognized glaucoma specialist. He's executive vice president of the World Glaucoma Association, and he's professor and chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Fechner. Thanks so much for coming in.
1: I'm glad to be here, Linda.
0: So let's start with just exactly explaining just what exactly is glaucoma.
1: There are a lot of funny ideas about glaucoma. People have heard about it. They may have had a friend or relative with glaucoma, but they don't quite know what it is. Glaucoma, in simplest terms, is a disease of the eye, which is asymptomatic at first, but slowly takes away your vision.
0: Really? So you actually get to the point where you totally lose your vision as a result of it?
1: Glaucoma is one of the leading worldwide causes of blindness. The good news is if we detect it early, we have very effective treatments to preserve vision throughout a lifetime. But the key is you need to have your eyes examined to know if you have glaucoma.
0: Okay, we're going to get to a recommendation in that regard specifically, but what's actually going on in the eye that's causing this problem? And what does glaucoma represent in the eye?
1: There are actually several different diseases that fall into the category of glaucoma. The most common one is called open angle glaucoma. And you can think of that as high pressure in the eyeball, which leads to damage to the optic nerve. The optic nerve is that structure that connects the eye to the brain. We don't really see with the eyes. The eyes get light and process it. But the vision occurs when the brain processes those signals. If you thought of the optic nerve uh, like the wire that's connecting our microphone to the recorder now that wire starts getting frayed and not all the signal gets through so in vision you start losing your ability to see contrast you lose some side vision and there's some other very subtle functions
0: well that's that's interesting I mean clearly very interesting but specifically what how would someone recognize now you said it can start subtly and at first there are no symptoms. What are, those some of the symptoms that do show up with something like this uh, open-angle glaucoma, for example?
1: Well, we call glaucoma the sneak thief of sight because once you're noticing it, it's very late, but we can detect it, and here's what we do. The earliest uh, signs of glaucoma are a change in your optic nerve, which your eye doctor can see or measure, and very subtle changes in your vision, usually tested with a visual field test. We blink little lights in a bowl, and you... Signal to us when you can see them. When you have glaucoma, we have to turn the lights up a little bit brighter for you to see them. And then there is the eye pressure test, uh, either a blue light or an air puff or some other technology. But I wouldn't want people to think if they had their pressure tested that they've had a complete glaucoma examination. Your pressure can actually be normal half the time when you go in for a single pressure test. You have to have the comprehensive eye exam. And we will find glaucoma before you ever notice it.
0: Do we actually know, though, what causes this rise in pressure to occur?
1: In some instances, we do. There are some what we call secondary glaucomas where we can look in the eye and we either see blood vessels growing across the drainage meshwork of the eye or we see other material on the drain. So sometimes it's as simple as a clogged drain in the eye. Uh, Other times we look in the eye and it looks completely normal and yet the pressure is high, or on a particular day, the pressure may be in a normal range, and yet we see the damage to the optic nerve, and when we do the testing, we find it confirms it.
0: Do we know that, Do we know if it's hereditary, or is this the kind of thing that just happens in a more random way?
1: There are random cases of glaucoma, but if you have glaucoma in your family, you have a 10-time greater risk. So if you have a brother, sister, parent, grandparent with glaucoma, you're someone who should be getting your eyes tested at a younger age and more regularly.
0: So what exactly are the risk factors, additional risk factors? In other words, we've mentioned that it's usually in older adults, but I think it doesn't, it does occasionally occur even in children. Is that correct?
1: It does occur in children. That's a different disease. Uh, I've seen babies born with a type of glaucoma. That's really not the sort of glaucoma um, we see most commonly, and older keeps changing for me as as I grow older. (laughs) So I think of glaucoma as a disease most commonly occurring in 40 and over, and that's actually pretty young. Yes, it is. So by age 40, you should have a comprehensive eye examination, looking for all sorts of things, but including glaucoma. The risk factors you need to know about are your family history. If a family member has glaucoma, you need to be checked. Uh, people of color have greater risk of glaucoma in the african-american population there's 10 times greater risk of glaucoma Uh, the same has been detected in a study of hispanics so as you age and depending on uh, your ethnicity um, you may have risk factors and need to be tested younger or more frequently
0: how about other eye conditions for example is there is if you're more nearsighted or farsighted do those things play a role
1: There's only a very weak correlation of glaucoma with other diseases, so we don't really have that signal. Um, There is um, a large study which has shown a little bit of tendency of glaucoma in nearsighted, but if you're getting your glasses checked regularly and your eyes checked regularly, we would find that. Now, there is a type of glaucoma that occurs in people with diabetes and Anybody who's being treated for diabetes needs to be getting their eyes checked for all sorts of things. You'll get cataracts younger. You'll get diabetic retina disease, and you can get glaucoma, but that's the less common presentation.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with ophthalmologist Dr. Robert Fechner, and we're talking about glaucoma as well as some other things about the eye, which I wanted to get to in a minute, but. How, what should people expect? You've been alluding to the very, very important role that a, a regular checkup with, for your eyes should, you should have, after, especially after age 40, and in some cases if there's a strong family history earlier than that. What should people expect when they come in for an eye exam? What, is, what constitutes a complete eye exam, one where you could walk away feeling, I've been checked and I know I don't have this disease?
1: Linda, we live in a very visual world. So if you're having vision problems, go in and get checked. But even if your vision is fine, you still need that comprehensive eye exam, and it is painless and easy. You should expect that your eye doctor is going to look at your eyes with a microscope. Uh, You will get your eye pressure tested, and there are different devices to do that. We'll dilate your pupil and look inside your eye. Now, that can cause your vision to be blurry for a few hours, but it allows us to look all the way across the retina and at the optic nerve. We truly do believe that the eye can be the window to the soul. (laughs) If there is anything that shows up that's a little out of the ordinary, we might do some pictures or scans of the inside of the eye, and that's with a a bright light. It's perhaps a little uncomfortable, but entirely, uh, entirely painless. And then we may ask you to do a vision function test, and the most common one is the visual field. We cover one eye, you look in this bowl projector with the other eye, and we blink lights off and on, and you push a button. It's like the dullest video game you've ever played.
0: <laughs> but it allows the doctor to actually know it, about the health of the retina and the health of the eye itself.
1: Those tests can show us changes before you ever notice any decrease in your vision. And the good news is, if we find it before you have any changes in vision, we preserve your vision. The Tragedy in glaucoma is when somebody doesn't get their eyes tested, they've lost a lot of vision. The best we can do with glaucoma is help you from getting worse. We can't make it better. We can't give back the vision that so you just do to glaucoma.
0: Perfect segue then into treatment. Because as you just said, the best treatment is prevention and in, in other words, finding it early enough. But then what's what's the you know the, the classic course of treatment? What so of trip, treatment?
1: Treatment for glaucoma can be as simple as one eye drop once a day. These eye drops tend to have very few or maybe no side effects. Uh, the, the hardest part with eye drops is to remember to use them and to stay on treatment. I think one of the big problems we've uncovered is glaucoma has no symptoms. You see fine, you feel fine, and maybe after a while you stop doing the eye drops with the thought, they're not making me better. So We have to change that thinking to, my eye drops are preserving my vision. And one or two drops a day may be all you need. We have laser surgery, which can help control pressure for glaucoma. And in a very small group of glaucoma patients, if we're not controlling the pressure well with medicines or with laser surgery, we actually go to the operating room and have a number of um, different procedures we can do with microsurgery to help control pressure and preserve vision.
0: Wonderful. That's actually very hopeful. So it's just getting back to the bottom line here, which sounds to me like, crucially, that cru- that eye exam is at the forefront of what people need to do to make sure that they don't end up with any damage.
1: Linda, I hope people hear your message, get your eyes tested, get your eyes tested, get your eyes tested. That's how you preserve your vision and prevent damage from glaucoma.
0: So how often should you be screened? Let's let's get, you know, kind of the word on that.
1: I would like every young adult to have an eye exam somewhere around age 18 or 20 just to look for oddball things we might see. That's not really part of glaucoma, that's just good sense. By age 40 you should have a baseline glaucoma examination if you're in one of the higher risk categories, probably have it every two years until age 60, and then every year. If you're not in a high-risk category and your vision is good, you can probably get your eyes checked every four years until age 60.
0: And then after age 60? And then
1: after age 60, I think an annual eye exam is a really good preventive health measure.
0: So what exactly is the difference? You know, you hear about Aging diseases of the eye that often come with aging and cataracts come up all the time And I don't think people always understand exactly what that is, but I know it does change Your vision it limits your vision in some ways, and it's very treatable. So how is that different from glaucoma? Glaucoma and just a little bit of time explain that to us
1: Sure, so in glaucoma I talked about damage to the nerve connecting the eye to the brain. That's that's cellular death and it's irreversible cataract is a natural consequence of aging. Every one of us who lives long enough will get cataracts. The eye works like a camera in that there's a lens inside the eye to focus light. And as I'm getting older, my lens is getting a little yellow and eventually it will get a little cloudy. So cataract is simply clouding of the natural lens in the eye. And we have exquisite techniques to remove that clouded lens and replace it. Modern cataract surgery is done as an outpatient through small incisions, uh, surgery is relatively quick, and success rates are extraordinarily high. So cataract is a lens replacement.
0: So does your vision, once the cataract is replaced, does your vision really return to what it was, let's say, prior to the cataract being a problem?
1: So the decrease in vision from cataract is slow and occurs over years the recovery of vision is dramatic people get their vision back and they can return to all their activities of daily living it is truly a miracle of modern medicine
0: well it's very exciting to know that and i think obviously lots of things have changed in ophthalmology that have really projected us forward and in the little bit of time we have left i'd love to talk with you about your vision you're fairly new as the chairman of this department And this department has been doing a lot of things already before you arrived. But I know you have a vision, no pun intended, for where the Department of Ophthalmology is going. Can you share it with us?
1: The Department of Ophthalmology at Upstate has a robust discovery science area. We are working down at the cellular and molecular level trying to understand diseases and come up with innovative cures. On the clinical side, we are delivering subspecialty care, for all of the region, but in particular, we are a point of access for the people who may not have anywhere else to go for their eye care. So the upstate Department of Ophthalmology is going to be a center of excellence for eye care here in the Syracuse And I know
0: region. you are doing, your department, as you mentioned, basic science, is doing some really, really interesting stuff about vision and, and repair of the retina and stem cell type of work, which is really, you know, world class. And I think it's very, very few people in, in the Upstate area understand that that's happening right here at, at Upstate Medical University.
1: It's it's sometimes really really funny to see how well known we are nationally, and yet people around town haven't heard about our science, so I want to get the message out.
0: They have right now, and I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing all that really good information about glaucoma, cataracts, and the very hopeful signs of what's going on in the world of ophthalmology. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. Robert Fechner. He's a nationally recognized glaucoma specialist. He's the executive vice president of the World Glaucoma Association, and he is professor and chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's Mm -hmm. Link on air. Coming up next, the urologic concerns of a woman through her life cycle. You're listening to Upstate's Healthlink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, it's just a fact of life that men's and women's bodies operate differently and are susceptible to different problems. Due to anatomic realities, women tend to have different medical issues regarding their bladders and their urinary tract than men. The causes are many, and so are the potential issues, but here, with more on the urological problems that women face, is Dr. Elizabeth Ferry. She's Assistant Professor of Urology, specializing in female urology and urodynamics, as well as general female urologic health at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Ferry. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I also noticed in your bio that you are a Watertown native, and you are a graduate of Upstate Medical University. Yes. So welcome back. Thank Thanks you. I'm so very happy for, to be back. And thank you so much for coming in today. So women experience different urologic issues than men, but I thought we might begin by explaining what we mean by the urologic system. What are the parts that, of our body that are involved in this system that we call the urologic system?
2: absolutely i like to refer to myself as a plumber <laughs> i think that's the easiest way to conceptualize it starting with the kidneys our kidneys take out all of the um, water and salt from our blood that our body doesn't need anymore and that's essentially what urine is uh, once they this is processed through the kidneys it drains down the ureters into the bladder and then women um, urinate through the urethra.
0: So the bladder is like a holding tank. So the kidneys are the purifiers of the blood or taking out things we don't need any longer, as you said, salt and water. Are there other things that come out as well? Other, you know, elements that come out of the blood? Or is it mostly salt and water?
2: Yes, there's other things that, um, so like you said, the kidneys are, are basically a purifier for the blood. So they're taking out all the things that, um, that it doesn't need anymore.
0: Okay, and then they go through the urethra, the ureters? Ureters, yeah. Ureters into the bladder, which is like a holding tank. Yes. And then down through the urethra is how we urinate. Correct. Okay, and then it comes out the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's a good overview. So why is it that women or women have different urological issues than men? Can you just kind of explain why that might be?
2: Sure. A lot of people think of urologists, um, there's been a lot of wonderful um, PSAs and information out there about prostate cancer, but women have a lot of urologic issues as well. Women can get kidney stones, they can get cancer in these organs, but about 50% of women do develop urinary incontinence, and about 10 to 15% develop uh, dropped bladder prolapse. And these are very treatable conditions, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean surgery, but we're happy to work with women so that they don't have to deal with these issues anymore. It doesn't have to be a part of daily life.
0: And what you, and I think what you're alluding to also is that some of these are real conditions, and they're not necessarily something that always happens to all women. Absolutely. So I thought we would do, just to help our listeners, we would do kind of a, a through the life cycle kind of approach to urology in women, if that's okay with you. Sure. So help us understand what generally happens to younger women in terms of their urologic system. What kinds of conditions or problems might arise?
2: So similar to men, uh, any woman could get kidney stones and these can develop as early as childhood. As women get a little bit older and um, you can start to have urinary frequency and urgency and even some incontinence.
0: So those are kind of that's an overview of the kind of thing. Um, what Who's most at risk if we're talking about younger women? Are there I mean, are there people who are stone developers? I mean, I've heard that before. There's something about them that makes them more prone perhaps, to develop stones.
2: Absolutely. And certainly if you develop a stone at a young age, we're happy to um, do certain testing to evaluate why you developed stones and how you could prevent them in the future.
0: So that's the question. So is it something that you say it's treatable? So obviously the, the initial insult of the stone, there were ways of helping the stone pass, what have you. And I know it can be very painful. Yes. But are, what are the kinds of treatments that are made available? Is it dietary changes? What kinds of things are done?
2: For preventative management, there are dietary changes as well as some uh, medicines that people can take depending on what's making them more prone to develop the stones.
0: Um, what generally, um, as you move through, as I said, um, what generally happens as you age in terms of your kidney and your bladders? Your bladder, <laughs> one bladder, your kidneys and your bladder. I mean, what are the, what are the things that aging or, or growing in terms of going from the early years to let's say the 30s and 40s what what generally is happening then
2: so some women can develop sensitivities in their bladder that makes them um, either have pain or sometimes overactivity or some people just develop overactivity um, the needing to go all the time more than the people
0: around you why does that happen what what is the cause is it understood as to what the cause of that is There's uh, schools of thought on both
2: the pain and the overactivity, and the pain especially is thought to be a, a priming or an overactivity of certain nerves within the bladder.
0: And they don't know why that comes, I mean, are some people more at risk for that in terms of their genetic makeup or their family history, are there some of those things playing a role?
2: Not especially, that have been really well developed.
0: So what do you do for that? So if somebody has that urgency, that frequency, that discomfort, the pain, um, and feeling they have to go all the time, I've seen a lot of commercials on television, so is it always treated medically through medic, basically medications?
2: It's really patient-dependent, and again, we like to work with our patients to try and develop a treatment plan that works best for you. Pelvic floor physical therapy is an excellent option for people that want to avoid medicines to help to retrain the bladder in the pelvic floor. Um, There are certainly very good medications available. And then there's additional treatments that we offer if a couple of medicines have failed, um, injecting Botox into the bladder, as well as trying to trick those nerves to help to relax the bladder.
0: So so basically, let me step back. When you say pelvic floor physical therapy, help us understand what is going on in terms of the the pel- so-called pelvic floor and why would exercise or physical therapy be effective? The bladder and
2: the rectum and the female reproductive organs all live very close together within the pelvic floor and that bowl of muscles that comprise the pelvic floor, they have a very dynamic relationship. And so if the issue is having to go all the time, The pelvic floor physical therapists are specially trained to help work on using those muscles to help to relax the bladder. So they give you exercises and and work with you. Or if the issue is leaking or not being able to hold the urine, they can help to train those muscles to hold it better. Everyone's heard of Kegels, but this is a little bit more and a little bit uh, more in depth. More in depth and, and more specific training
0: it's that's interesting that it can really make a difference. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. Elizabeth Ferry. We're talking about women's urologic issues. So I would think that if you are going through child childbirth and pregnancy, that there, as we know, women have a lot of pressure in those around those organs. And are is pregnancy and, you know, successive childbirth, does that play a role in terms of the likelihood of women developing urologic symptoms and problems. So certainly pregnancy is a risk
2: for incontinence as well as for that dropped bladder or or prolapse.
0: Um, Just because of the weakening or the softening of the ligaments and all the structural support for those organs, is that the main reason?
2: Well, there's actually a lot of really interesting research being done on this, whether it's the pregnancy itself and the hormones at play, or uh, vaginal delivery, especially with larger babies, um, and if there's any
0: tearing involved. So basically, in a sense, what you're saying is pregnancy does put you at risk, potentially. It doesn't mean that every person who has babies ends up with, you know, incontinence, or even um, any of these issues, but it does put you in that kind of a a potential circumstance.
2: Certainly. It's a risk. Not everyone develops incontinence, and not everyone that develops incontinence has had babies.
0: Okay. That's very interesting. So what happens during menopause? Does the loss of estrogen change things significantly? And again, as we age, are you more likely over time to develop some of these issues?
2: Certainly, as we age, we're more and more likely to develop these symptoms, especially of incontinence and of the drop bladder, just as everything starts to drope a little bit as we get older. <laughs> gravity the the gravity is is unrelenting. Yeah. Um, and definitely after menopause, the, the decreased estrogen can have an impact on the vagina, um, and especially with issues of intercourse and pain with intercourse.
0: So those things will occur just they could they could occur not mm-hmm. in every woman as well so over overall if you were to categorize the kind of common problems that occur let's just do a little overview review again so what you mentioned stones frequency what are some of the other things i mean what else would you be on the lookout for and what symptoms would you be concerned about
2: recurrent urinary tract infections plague a lot of women um, and we can look into why they're at risk for them, if there's anything particular that's uh,
0: putting them at risk, and, and that would be treatable. Um, is that usually because of anatomical things that are going on, or is it because of their immune system? What usually is at the cause of of frequent urinary tract infections?
2: It depends. It could be um, that there's a kidney stone that's um, causing recurrent infections. Um various anatomic things that you had mentioned, um, whether that be an abnormal connection or a little outpouching, not being able to empty the bladder all the way, all of these could be why a woman could develop recurrent or persistent urinary tract infections.
0: So if somebody were to have those, is it very important for them to see a urologist to get a kind of a very in-depth diagnosis and therefore then treatment?
2: it's certainly important to rule out any preventable causes or anatomic issues that's causing this. One or two urinary tract infections per year is not abnormal in women, but if you have more than two in six months, you know, that should warrant an evaluation. Go ahead. Another important thing that should be evaluated is blood in the urine for women. And even if you're not seeing it, but your, your doctor is telling you that uh, when they test your urine, they're seeing blood under the microscope. That's really important to have evaluated. Why?
0: What does that mean?
2: It could be nothing. It could be kidney stones. It There's a variety of things that could cause this little bit of blood in the urine, but sometimes it's the only thing that's telling us that there's a cancer there. And and women do develop kidney cancers, bladder cancers, so it's really important to have these things evaluated.
0: So again, uh, would that be the kind of thing that your primary care doctor might alert you to, and then it would be important to go further and see a urologist? Absolutely. And you had said, uh, when we first sat down, something you wanted women to know about seeing urologists. urologist. I think people become very um, gun-shy, for want of a better term, to the idea of going to a surgical subspecialty like urology if they if they feel like they're having incontinence or something. So tell-
2: absolutely. I think a lot of people are concerned that if they see a surgeon, they're going to get a surgery. And that's certainly not the case. We are happy to work with you to develop a treatment plan that you're comfortable with we talked a little bit about pelvic floor physical therapy different ways of tricking the nerves that doesn't have to be a surgical method as well as medicines and and really a lot of other things
0: to work with you to find a treatment plan uh,
2: as you say you're
0: comfortable with dietary changes sometimes they do endoscopy things that are less invasive and Absolutely. ways of really finding out what's at the bottom of all these issues. But I guess what's the the bottom line is that most of these things are very treatable.
2: Yes. I think it's important to know that especially once the more concerning things, we talked a little bit about cancer, Uh, once those things are ruled out, it really becomes a lifestyle issue. And women don't have to just live with these issues. These can be a huge impact on their lifestyle, and we are here and want to help uh, with female providers so it's a comfortable setting um, so that you don't have to deal with this.
0: Thanks so much. That's very, very encouraging and very reassuring. My guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Ferry. She's assistant professor of urology, specializing in female urology and urodynamics, general uh, female urologic health as well, at Upstate Medical University. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. I'm, I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next Up, a new program to engage people with disabilities with the great outdoors. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. The Great outdoors. Adventures in nature can be healing and a wonderful way to maintain or increase one's health and fitness. But for some individuals with disabilities, gaining access to our beautiful surroundings can be quite challenging. Joining us with more on a new effort to make the great outdoors available to everyone is Dr. Ninka Dosa. She's an Upstate Foundation Professor of Child Health Policy and a Senior Fellow at the Burton Blatt Institute of Syracuse University as well as the Center for Development, Behavior, and Genetics, and the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. And joining her is Sam Guillaume. She's a junior and a student at uh, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Dosa, let me start with you. Getting out in nature apparently can be a challenge for some people with disabilities. Tell us about that.
3: The challenge can be uh, physical access, um, um, having ex- access, for example, to a fishing launch site that is wheelchair accessible. Uh, that can be that's an example of um, physical access being a challenge. It can also be problems with programmatic access. Um, an example of that would be um, personnel at a uh, campsite, for example, not being uh, maybe aware of the need for um, uh, assistance, d- assistance like, for example a, uh, a young adult with autism needing to have uh, assistance of an aide. um and, but I would say that the most important uh, challenge for us to be aware of is information. People just don't know often that there are wonderful resources in our area that, that are accessible
0: to all of us. So the idea is that if, if someone has a physical disability or a, a psychological emotional disability, that perhaps they might not feel perhaps safe or welcomed, or that the, the environment, these kind of outside parks and recreational areas really are set up to accept or encourage their participation
3: yes um and i think the term that might apply most um uh, a good term to think of is inclusive um and a friend of mine uh, once talked about nature being uh the ultimate inclusion And I think that's a wonderful way to think about access.
0: So again, why is it important? I mean, what about being out in nature is so important for all all of us, and then specifically, in in this case, for people who are disabled?
3: For all of us, um, there are benefits to being outdoors in terms of cardiovascular health, uh, reduced stress, uh, improved mood, uh, maintaining weight, bone health,
0: um,
3: and it also boosts creative thinking to be in the outdoors.
0: So there's a lot of good reasons to get out there, <laughs> and obviously you, you've all been involved in trying to make this happen. Tell us, you're in an organization, Dr. Dosa, that's really trying to make a change in terms of really opening up the out-of-doors Tell us about the Fitness Inclusion Network. What is it and what is its mission? The
3: Fitness Inclusion Network was launched in 2013 with funding from the Upstate Foundation. And we are an interdisciplinary group of athletes, both with and without disabilities, uh, families, community leaders, and professionals from SUNY Upstate Medical College and Physical Therapy School, uh, as well as SUNY Cortland's Department of Adapted Physical Education and uh, various programs at Syracuse University, um, including the Burton Blatt Institute and the Lerner Center for Public Health Promotion at the Maxwell School. So we're a network, we're not an institute, we're not a center, we're just a group of people who all share an interest in promoting innovation in the area of inclusive fitness um, for children, adolescents, and adults with disabilities.
0: And. As a result of this, Sam, you got involved. You're a SUNY ESF student, but you got involved in a project, a project called Walks and Talks. And that's kind of an outgrowth, am I correct, an outgrowth of this whole network? Tell us about that whole thing.
4: Yeah, so um, this year in class, in one of my classes, we actually um, got involved through Nika and other people who are upstate to do the project called Walks and Talks. So we were paired up with somebody whether they had a physical or a mental disability or both possibly. But um, me specifically, I worked with a kid who had CP. So he cerebral palsy. Yes. So he was fine completely. Um, he had friends who are just normal in the general public, like just worked with everybody else. But he wanted to be involved in sports specifically. So it kind of aimed towards how he could be incorporated into nature, um, be able to get out there when he was in a wheelchair. So he had almost zero mobility for himself, but um, with his wheelchair, he actually was able to try and get involved in normal projects and sporting events. And he was actually a manager for multiple sports teams at his local high school. Wow. And he um, actually, through our walks and talks program, he blogged about it. So he would blog about his experiences um, walking in nature. So the walks and talks focused on walking specifically through these people's normal lives um how they would incorporate nature and then being able to discuss with them while doing it he doesn't have the best speech skills just because of the way his body functions so um we communicated a little differently but basically we just followed him through his everyday life how he would be a manager how he would navigate onto sporting fields off fields on the buses, um, when he wanted to go out and be active with his two brothers, how he could do that, and it was really eye opening experience to see how the general public doesn't necessarily pay attention to these people the way that they should, because they might take advantage of the things that they would just normally have and be able to navigate. When as for him, it would be a huge, huge barrier to be able to incorporate into the normal what the normal kids were doing, or even just to get on the field. It was a major issue. So we kind of, through these walk-and-talk programs, could look at these and try and find ways to improve upon normal things that people wouldn't necessarily think about because it doesn't apply to them.
0: Right. So it really was eye-opening for you, but also you saw how it was really that what the challenges were for mm-hmm. the individual. And how did you help him overcome them? By Were there changes being made in his life in terms of access what, what kinds of things changed? Yeah, the out. end
4: goal was obviously to see what we could do to help, but for him, he was kind of just used to trying to work around what we would just normally be able to, I guess, just bypass. And for him, when I would see him struggle, to him he wouldn't even consider it a struggle because that's just how he lives his everyday life. So something as simple as... Getting to the sporting event, he couldn't ride the bus with his other teammates. He couldn't hang out with his friends on the bus, and you know, there's something about the bonding, social part of that that he was kind of outcast from. His parents had to take him because there wasn't accessibility, and then if he was trying to go onto a sporting field, a lot of the time they have turnstile gates that obviously wasn't going to be able to work for him. So he might have to navigate all the way to the other end of the field, just small things like that, and that's obviously sports related. But we also did go on a walk. Um, in a nearby park. And small things like stones getting stuck if they weren't paved properly, or a little um, just indents in the sidewalk.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with Dr. Ninka Dosa and student Sam Guillaume. And we're talking about making the great outdoors accessible to individuals with disabilities. So Dr. Dosa, this project, Walks and Talks, uh, Sam's specific experience was of one kind. But what exactly was is kind of the, the overall goal? And is there an attempt not only to obviously highlight the challenges, but to make changes as a result of it? Yes. Tell us about that.
3: So Sam uh, was a student in Dr. Matt Podiger's um, landscape architecture class at the School of Forestry, the SUNY Yesf um, College of Forestry. And Uh, The name of this class is telling, it's called Place, Culture, and Design, and it was focused on the cultural values and practices that shape place. Um, You had about 20 students in this class, so they all did walks and talks, they were paired with individuals either that I know through my clinical practice or that we know socially in the community who are advocates for um, inclusion and um, what kinds of
0: disabilities were there included in terms of these types of individuals
3: sure. so we had um, across the land lifespan we had um, people with um, autism intellectual disability physical disability such as cerebral palsy and spina bifida so vision impairment and blindness so there was a whole spectrum of um, uh, experiences for uh, the students to better understand um, and the walks and talks activity is actually, for, the, for this class, is part of um, a six-month-long conference, um, quote-unquote qu- conference. It's our annual fitting conference this year. Um, so the Fitness Inclusion Network has a variety of activities, uh, the main one being an annual conference to infuse innovation in the area of inclusive fitness and adapted sport. And the conference this year, so each year we try to do The conference around a different theme and also have a different format just to maintain the the innovation. And the theme this year is outdoor recreation and the format is a series of walks and talks of which the landscape design students participated in one component Um, and we've been videotaping that with those walks and talks with GoPro cameras and we've also done some drone videography of walks in our our, uh, city parks. Um, and the goal is to highlight all the amazing natural spaces that we have, just not just regionally, but right here in our in our city.
0: So it's to also highlight all of the beauty that we have around. But it sounds like there's a bit more of a mission yeah, underlying. Yes. So the the it.
3: specific mission for the ESF partnership is to inform efforts that will uh, get implemented this spring to create an accessible and inclusive Monday Mile Loop uh, near
0: Kirk Park. So. The, so, so you basically, what I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm correct, both you, Sam, and, and, and Dr. Dosa, is that the effort here is to kind of highlight and, and, have, other, and have average students have the opportunity to participate with individuals with disabilities who, who might then, these students such as the SUNY ESF students, might then be more creative, innovative in terms right. of their own lives in changing accessibility. Because what I'm hearing is is the opportunity to truly open up and make accessible to people of all walks. Right. And And, and these are bi-directional
3: conversations. Mm -hmm. The students talked about where they like to walk and then the people they were partnered with also shared where they like to walk and why.
0: But if they were to find challenges, and and you, uh, Sam, highlighted the idea of stones, for example, something as as innocuous that we wouldn't think about as being a problem, being a major challenge to somebody, perhaps, who's wheelchair-bound, I mean, what then would the goal be? I mean, is there some thinking then that another project might be directed toward paving a particular area?
3: Yes. So the city will be creating a paved loop near Kirk Park this spring, um, there's also in that area on Onondaga Creek, which is a beautiful natural area, currently not very available for uh, I- enjoyment. It's, it's almost um, there are fences around it and it's almost uh, not highlighted. Um, so um, it's a wonderful resource in that area of town that um, landscape d- uh, design students have. Uh, some ideas uh, for improving, for example, an accessible fishing launch site, um, birdhouses to, um, to highlight nature more, um, and the sensory experience one can have in that area. Also, th- do you want to describe? Uh, yeah, the- um,
4: well, another thing that we looked at was an overlook, and so an overview. Someone couldn't necessarily go, and it was an educational experience, so there was like signs and pictures and information on the creek walk and just people couldn't necessarily access that and especially if they're younger kids that's something they would really enjoy doing so just trying to design spaces that didn't need stairs or ramps you know bringing them to the right level for everybody no matter what so people who are in the general public who didn't necessarily think and then people who are disabled could all
0: view you know so the the idea was to open up and make more accessible our current beautiful spaces that we have and also yeah basically inclusion that's wonderful so um right now in central new york are there resources for individuals with disabilities in terms of finding out what currently is available and then what might be available so uh,
3: arise which is our local independent living center is a wonderful resource they are they really for decades have been offered inclusive recreation year-round with Arise and Ski and Arise on the Farm. So that's one resource. Our website, the Fitness Inclusion Network website, also has a resource. And we published uh, a booklet that we can link to your site called about geocaching, which highlights accessible nature areas through the Department of Environmental Conservation and State Park System and the Inclusive Recreation Resource Center, which is maintained by SUNY Cortland.
0: Well, we'll have links on our website to some of your uh, resources. And what I, I want to applaud both of you. It's it sounds like a very, very noble effort and something that's really important. We have in in central New York an incredible resource in terms of our natural beauty all through our region. Yes. And it should be available to all. And I, I really applaud you for this effort of making it, you know, accessible to all. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing it. My guests have been Dr. Ninka Dosa. She's Upstate Foundation Professor of Child Health Policy. And a senior fellow at the Burton Blatt Institute of Syracuse University, as well as the Center for Development, Behavior, and Genetics and the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, and Sam Guillaume, a junior student at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Thanks so much again.
4: Thank you. Thank
0: you. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
5: Thank you, Linda. Gloria Heffernan's poetry, fiction, and essays have been widely published in journals and magazines like The Columbia Review, Stone Canoe, The Chronicle of Higher Ed. She teaches part-time at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. She has two poems in this issue of The Muse, and they evoke for me the power and poignancy of memory, loss, and kindness. Here is Let Morning Come, modeled after Jane Kenyon's Let Evening Come. Let the darkness of the long night recede from the city's rooftops, blending morning with morning as the sun rises. Let the taxis barrel down the streets as if there were somewhere to go beyond this hospital room. Let morning come. Let the unopened envelopes pile up in the mailbox. Let sunlight pour into your kitchen where dishes still litter the sink. Let squirrels and pigeons forage in the park. Let the neighbors wonder about the woman taken away in an ambulance. Let morning come. To the milk carton in the refrigerator, to the blinking light on the answering machine, to the ones left behind, let morning come. Let cold wind blow as it will, and don't be afraid. Grief is the outer fabric of a coat lined with gratitude, so let morning come. And next is her poem, Hiking Coco. Coco head soars a thousand feet over the glittering waves of Hanoma Bay. Vertical climb, too much for the aging tourist who doesn't know any better. Temperature a blistering 100 degrees. Empty water bottle, drier than the dusty bed of the crater below. The collapse is slow, graceful almost, as I sink to the railroad ties that mark the ascent. And then it begins. Ohana, they call it. Family. The man who gives me his extra bottle of water. The young girl in fuchsia running shorts, massaging my hand to keep the blood flowing the college student who tucks his backpack under my head while he fans my face with his baseball cap, the German tourist who hoists my feet over her shoulders to keep your blood circulating, she explains. I surrender to them all as they minister to the stranger lying prostrate on the trail. Thank you, I say, mahalo, a mumbled mantra uttered down a long corridor where I hear my own echo. They shush me as if I were a toddler struggling against nap time, but they need to know what I see, gazing up from my place on the ground, where I witness the tender gestures of anonymous angels, saving the life of a woman whose name they will never know.
0: Joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore headaches and the best way to treat them. Plus, an update on traditional smoking and on the e cigarette and the concerns it's sparking. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air, that's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.